the one thing that's certain is it's never going away because this is the best accounting technology, which is instrumental to run the world that has ever been invented. And so the rest of it is just noise to me. It's, it's going to go up. It's going to go down. The daily price fluctuations are meaningless. We just keep building. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe. But they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, today we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. 
take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. So we're recording now? We're, we're, yeah, we're recording. Oh, we're going. We're you're, live. Your first in-person. Yeah, so there, yeah, this is my first in-person podcast ever. Okay. It's my third podcast. The other two were on Zooms uh, with other people. So it's my first in-person and it's my first solo podcast. And you've been in Bitcoin since when? Uh, 2012. 2012. 2012. So in, 12. So in 11, 12. 10 years. In a decade, yes. Is that too far away? Yeah, we weren't, weren't here. In a decade, you've done three. And you've can't done, sit back. The funny thing is, because I pestered you a little bit about this, because a handful of people recently have said, got to get you on. I appreciate it. Listen, I, don't, I wouldn't call it pestering. I wanted to come on. <laughs> but people are like, Darren, you've got to get Darren on. He's got, he's got, got stories, man. Anyway, normally... When we, uh, uh, Danny might chip in occasionally as well. Uh, normally, when we do a podcast, we I have a sh- I have a sheet of notes, all right. the things we're going to talk about. And when Danny was like, "How are we going to prep for this?" Where well, I was like, "This is we don't need to prep. <laughs> this, is, this isn't one where we sit and we go, tell us about your business, blah blah. blah. Like, this is one where we have no prep. We're just going to get you to unload stories on us. I love it. I love my because now that we're part of a publicly traded company, we yeah. have a compliance department. And before I do something like this, which I haven't done many of, we have to get approval. So they said, we need to see the talking points. And, and I said, I, I haven't been provided any. <laughs> and so like, even today, as I was coming here, they were like, are you going to provide us any of the topics that you're going to be on? I said, apparently we're not going to. <laughs> so, are, are they going to have to listen to it before it goes out? No, no, we're, we'll be okay. We'll be good. All right. Okay. So we'll just stay away from non-public information. Non-public information. Okay. Well, like, so I think we should we should just go back to 2011 because most people now in Bitcoin they weren't around in 2011. I'm uh, first heard about 2012. Bought a little bit 2012-13 just to use this uh, website. I yeah, discovered. you have a great great story. <laughs> well, I, have, I appreciate. I that read one. about on Wired, uh, but then I didn't spend any time looking at Bitcoin. I didn't. Yeah, I purely did a few transactions on local bitcoins and sent them to this website. Properly got in around seventeen, start seventeen, and, and that's me. And most people I know, there's a class of seventeen, uh, thirteen. There's a class of seventeen. There's a class now of the last couple of years, but there's very few class of 2011, 12. Uh, so it's quite interesting to go back with you. T- tell us your intro, how you got in. Yeah, absolutely. So. So just a little bit of, of background before that is I was an accountant. I was at, at a, a firm called Kenneth Leventhal, which was consumed later on by Ernst & Young. Uh, I lasted a, uh, a very short while as an accountant, but that's my background. And I look at everything as, as a finance-based transaction in terms of what's going on on the numbers. So I was an accountant and then I was a lawyer. I went to law school, became a lawyer. I was in-house counsel investment banking company. And we did a lot of deals, mostly distressed. So I, I was in these distressed markets and the companies that I then got involved with when I started my own uh, boutique investment banking firm, I don't know, 20 plus years ago, we would get involved in companies that were distressed. They had litigation, receivership foreclosures, some kind of problems within the corporation. And then we'd get involved in these messy situations and clean them up. Uh, I ended up with different assets in a variety of different businesses. Uh, some deals were good, some deals were bad. We, you kind of just 
go through that. It's a numbers game. You know, sometimes, sometimes you're investing in things that are wild and work out. And sometimes you're investing in things that are wild and they don't work out. Uh, it, it becomes a binary statistic. In around 2011, I had a large entertainment company in Las Vegas where we produce shows. I bought that out of a bankruptcy. So that was one of the businesses that my company ran. And that company controlled theaters, box office, and production at casinos in Las Vegas. Some of the shows that we were doing that I've done historically over the years, we put up money, for instance, with Caesars for J-Lo and Lionel Richie and the Backstreet Boys. We put up money with uh, MGM for Lady Gaga and Aerosmith. I've been to the Lionel show. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I was a financial producer. What a great show. He's such a, yeah. he's an amazing recording artist. And he does a story the whole time. So, so people really get into it. Uh, and then we do smaller shows. So I own some tribute shows in Las Vegas uh, that I've had for over a decade also. There's a Michael Jackson tribute show that I own. Uh, right now it's at the Tropicana. And at the Tropicana, we do all the ticketing box office and production for the casino. Uh, all the shows were either partner in or they're my tenant, like the Laugh Factory in, in Las Vegas at the Tropicana. They pay us rent and use my ticketing platform. In 2011, there were message boards that popped up across the world that that were, uh, let me turn this over. Their message boards popped up that told people how to get out of charges if they were on their credit card to see shows. So we saw the, the number of chargebacks on the show side skyrocket. And so I started looking into alternative payment methods in 11. And one of the, one of the uh, technologies we looked at was Bitcoin. And I think my reaction in 2011 as an accountant and as a lawyer mirrors the reaction of most people that have finance or legal backgrounds or representatives for a variety of governments across the world. When you Googled it in 2011, the first thing you saw was that people used it to buy drugs on the internet. And the second thing you saw really made it sound like digital video game money to me. And so initially, my initial reaction was, this sounds silly and I should probably stay away from this. I have privileged licenses. I have uh, gaming licenses and liquor licenses and banking licenses and the variety of businesses that I had. And it's it wasn't worthwhile to put that at risk. Over the next few months, because I was cognizant of this new technology, I saw an article that piqued my interest, which is the genesis for why I'm, I'm here in this industry and, and made this industry uh, all I do, all I work on. And the genesis of that was an article that said that this new technology is an immutable ledger. And so that really doesn't mean a lot to most people, but that's the most important thing almost in humanity for record keeping. And as an accountant, I geek out on the uh, getting to the granular level of, of the accounting uh financial records that were provided all the time, especially as my investment banking company, most everything we see is bullshit. They give us, they give us numbers that, that don't correlate to, to reality. And so an immutable ledger, just, it sounded uh, something made up, but I, I started researching it. And what I realized was that it was immutable and it was immutable for uh, a variety of reasons that, that, I spent months digesting. And so what I realized was, 
and I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to give you a little bit of my accounting talk because I do do an accounting talk to small groups. Uh, I've only done it, you know, three or four times in, you know, small, uh, in small increments to, to other groups. But what I, what I realized was that the history of accounting, okay, and accounting runs the world. You don't know what you own without a ledger. You don't know where you are. You don't know anything that your government's doing, any business that you're associated with, what you have in the bank. You need a ledger to tell you that. So ledgers run the world. And the history of accounting, which are these ledgers, is really, really simple. The history of accounting has two innovations before Bitcoin. 10,000 years ago, the first innovation happened. Humans in Mesopotamia or, or some country, you know, way back across the world, they went to a market and they bought five sheep. So they bought five sheep at this market. They took a clay tablet. They wrote down, I have five sheep. They baked it in the sun so other humans couldn't change the books and records. And that was it. That's the birth of single entry accounting. And over a period of time, you could look at that ledger and you could know how many sheep you have in six months and 12 months and 18 months. And so you always know how many sheep you have. That was accounting until the 1400s. In the 1400s, they invented double entry accounting. I bought five sheep. I paid $5. Okay. That, that transaction, okay. The, the bought five sheep paid $5 is a debit and a credit. And when you add that up, you get every single financial statement, every balance sheet, every revenue statement you see on the planet earth today, every single bank, every government, every corporation, they all use this antiquated system from the 1400s called double entry accounting, which is an analog system. It's terrible. It's terrible because the people that control the books and records, they can change the books and records. They're not immutable. And so what happens when people that control the money can change their own books and records? Well, we see what happens. You have devastating fraud for 700 years in every industry, in every government, and every corporation on the planet Earth. And it's really difficult to unwind or even realize the frauds going on because the books and records are private. They're privately held. And so in order to figure out that there's a fraud going on on these private records, you need other humans to conduct a physical human audit of other human records that are not kept well. But we know those people are corruptible. Yes, right. So, right. There, you go down the line, if there's a human element involved, you have a trust factor risk, right? And so, and that's why you've seen large accounting firms implode, right? During the Enron uh, 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 event, the accounting firm that was running Enron approved all of their books and records. And then, and then later on, after billions of dollars went missing, the accounting firm imploded. You saw the same thing with Bernie Madoff. He had financials that were audited every year for decades. Uh, you end up with human trust elements in an analog system, right? So you have accounting that was created in the 1400s, running the world, running everything. And the question is, if it's such a bad system, how come it was never innovated, right? Why, why did nobody ever innovate this double entry accounting system? Well, it's really easy. No one's incentivized to fix it because a government gets to control all their books and records. They get the money from the public and they don't have to disclose what they spend any money on because the books and records for your government, well, they're held privately and you don't get to see them. Same thing with corporations, same thing with institutions and individuals. It's all private. And so 
Nobody's been incentivized to change that at all. And so we've seen that last until today, until 2009, really, when the Bitcoin network was, was created. And what the Bitcoin network did was it took this antiquated double entry system. You have debits and credits. And they came up with this genius methodology, which became the consensus mechanism for approving the transactions between two parties. I'm not going to go too deep into the Byzantine general problem, but I know that you know what that is. And, and I, I break it down like this. In the history of humanity forever, there's no way, assume me and you don't know each other and we don't trust each other and we're over geographic space. There's no way for Peter and Darren to conduct a transaction without a third party. And what that means is if you're in Asia and I'm in Europe, and we make a deal for you to send me some value, okay? You send me the value, but I didn't get it. I don't believe that you sent it, right? I don't know you. You told me you sent it. I didn't get it. I think you're a bad actor. I think you're not telling me the truth and you didn't send it. And now if I say I didn't receive it and you sent it, you don't believe that I didn't receive it. You think I got it. And now I'm saying I didn't get it, right? So over time and space, over geographic space and over time, two parties, cannot conduct a transaction. It's impossible. And so what happened? Because we know transactions have been occurring for tens of thousands of years. How did people do transactions? Well, a third party confirmation system popped up. So me and Peter are doing a transaction. A third party confirmation system pops up to verify the transaction. You send your value to this third party. I send my value to the third party. They say, yep, we confirm Peter sent his value. Darren sent his value, transaction culminated, okay? That's how all transactions have to be uh, partaken over the last thousands of years, up until 2009. There was no way to conduct a peer-to-peer -peer transaction over geographic space or over the internet. You still need a third-party verification system to approve the transaction between two parties. Well, thousands of years ago, this third-party confirmation system, what did that turn into? A bank, a bank. So the very first uh, business line of banks were confirmation of transactions between two parties and they took a fee, right? And so now you have this third-party verification system. It conducts the approvals of the transaction and it takes a fee. Well, what's the next thing that a bank does? It custodians money. So if I sent a million dollars to the custodian, to this verification system, you don't want them to send that to your house. So you say you custodian that money. And that's what banks do. They confirm parties between two, between two parties transactions. They verify the transactions and then they custodianship money. So they custodian your money. Everything else that a bank does in the world today is legislatively fabricated. They just come up with other business lines that they're able to do. And so the banks now have your million dollars. Well, in America, they can borrow from the Fed and then lend that money out to create another product line within what in their purview and you know in their tool shed of, of products in the bank. And so now this bank's lending out all this money from the deposits. That business of lending money out is now the majority of money that banks made. And it's all predicated on two things. Banks having your money in there to custodian. And the other one is confirming a transaction between two parties. And so we've never had this ability to conduct a peer-to-peer -peer transaction ever because the ledger system didn't work. Didn't work. It was analog. So you had to physically do it. And you didn't trust the parties involved. 
And so what the Bitcoin network did was you took two parties, party A and party B, conducting a transaction over a geographic time and space digitally. And the consensus mechanism is the innovation of Bitcoin. And this, this entire innovation talk gets lost sometimes because this is so complicated. You really have to understand accounting and ledgers and the history of transactions between two parties and what's happened globally. Well, I've had people explain to me that Bitcoin is triple entry uh, record keeping. You mentioned it to me when we hung out a couple of months back, a few months back. And I was like, oh, do you know what? I still actually don't know what, did you know what, if you heard it, or did you know what it means? It, only because I've got a friend who's an accountant who's explained it to me. Yeah, but I've never actually had it explained to me in that way. And, and now I'm like, huh, okay, that's great. I mean, I get it now. And also what you've done in that, you've identified all the risks around the double entry accounting system with a third party. Yeah, so right. So because you have this digital node server system that confirms every transaction to its inception, and this is the most important part, it self audits every transaction to the inception of the Bitcoin. And then after it's self audited, it writes it to the triple entry, to this third entry. The word blockchain is really a stupid word. It's a silly word, technical jargon for an accounting ledger. It's just an accounting ledger. Blockchain is a digital accounting ledger and digital accounting ledgers have existed forever because if you have a, if you have a computer and you're keeping records, that's a blockchain. What's the innovation here is not blockchain. It's not this, it's not an accounting ledger. The innovation here is the methodology to audit the transaction to its inception. The audit factor is what changes this. You now have no human risk between two parties and you can't rescind the transaction. So you have this immutable transaction that can never be undone. And once it's audited, it gets written to the blockchain, to the, to the Bitcoin blockchain. And so this new technology eliminates, and this is why there's so much upheaval globally, it eliminates all the legacy systems that have been put in place for thousands of years to confirm a party tra- uh, two-party transaction, right? For thousands of years, legacy banking systems have all predicated on the fact that we can't do business with each other because there's a trust risk. This network eliminates that. And so on an accounting side, uh, you have the most important accounting innovation in human history, right? It's the first time you've ever had an immutable ledger. It's the first time you have a self-audited system. And so when I looked at this, and I went down the rabbit hole, obviously, very deep in 2011, and then bled into 12 a little bit, I was shocked at the value of this network. And I thought, and I was wrong, I thought that, and I realized the Bitcoin network, capital B, the Bitcoin network, is, is the accounting innovation, what I just explained. It's this consensus mechanism, uh, fully audited every 10 minute transaction written to a blockchain. This party A to party B transaction uh, through this new accounting innovation, that is the Bitcoin network. Bitcoin lowercase b is different. Bitcoin lowercase b is the digital asset that lives on those rails. And Bitcoin, the digital asset, which trades as a commodity, is the best monetary technology on the planet Earth only because it lives on the best accounting technology that's ever been created. And so you can't really understand what Bitcoin is without understanding the rails that it runs on. And the rails that it runs on are the, it's the most important accounting innovation that changes humanity, how they conduct business forever. And I've thought wrongly that 
this accounting technology would take off. I said, everybody's going to demand that the companies they invest in and the governments that run their money utilize something to this effect that can has to be immutable. I, I didn't even think you could. it was possible to do that. And so on accounting level, uh, I was – I was massively intrigued. I realized also, and I hate the word minor, the miners, I, you know, I realized, and, and, and I don't know who picked this word, the miners are just computer servers that are the accountants of the network. So the miners are the accountants that make the money getting in the middle of these transactions between two parties. And so because I was so intrigued by this, I said, you know, as a hobby, I'm going to partake in this network. I want to help protect this network and be a part of the of the confirmation of transactions. And so I started uh, in 2012, uh, maybe closer to the end of 2012. I think I took a year trying to really grasp this. And one other thing before I started, I think when you get deep enough into it, you realize it's real. This technology is real. It's important. It's an innovation for the world. And it changes it changes the world. So, you know, it has value. And so everybody in 2012 that I told I was about to participate in this network, they instantly thought that I was participating in the drug trade or some kind of illicit activity. And I'm like, no, this is just an accounting innovation. And so I spent years talking to people that uh, I was in different business deals about Bitcoin, listening to all of the questions that they would ask me. And so I've had almost every question you could possibly have for very smart, very sophisticated financial people. And, and I've just been uh, unwillingly practicing, uh, advocating for this system for a decade now. And in 2012, 13 now, probably, I started mining. Uh, back then, I think we were uh, GPUs, first generation ASICs. I bought everything you could buy. Uh, most of it didn't work. Some of it didn't show up. We had every problem you can probably imagine that we would have that early. Uh, and I did it as a hobby until about 2015. And in 2016, I, I looked at the way the world was going and I decided that I wanted to only do this. I only wanted to build infrastructure and, and really defend and, and try to build the infrastructure network in America. And at that time, I probably had by myself equipment in four or five different locations. And I had massive problems. The equipment would disappear. They wouldn't work. It would go on. It would go off. The people running it, you know, would be very inefficient with how they kept the equipment on. And I realized that there was no commercial enterprise grade level facilities in America to host blockchain equipment. And so I looked around the world and in 20, end of 16, maybe early 17, I started a new company. I stopped the other ones. Uh, and that company looked for a location in America where I could build out on an enterprise grade level in a, in a, uh, in a high volume, uh, uh, commercial setting, uh, an infrastructure project that would be somewhat to the extent of what the data center business is now to servers. So we, I tried to uh, build a better infrastructure facility, better mouse. I hate saying better mousetrap, but I, I had to stop myself. But there you go. Uh, I wanted to build a better infrastructure facility. And so I looked at hundreds of sites 
And eventually we settled on a location in North Carolina. So at the time I was living in Las Vegas, uh, I found a location in North Carolina in the Appalachian Mountains in a small town called Marble, uh, Marble, North Carolina. The reason I picked the Appalachian Mountains in this small town, the United States government in the 40s, they built critical infrastructure to power the Manhattan Project. So the, the Manhattan Project was up there in the, in the Appalachian Mountains needed a massive amount of energy. So they dammed up the Appalachian Mountains and they created a massive amount of hydroelectric power, right? 100% renewable, uh, very plentiful hydroelectric power up in the Appalachian Mountains. After, the, after that Manhattan Project uh, was over in the 50s and 60s, America manufacturing industries moved up into those mountains because there's a massive amount of renewable energy that's stranded, right? It, you can only transport renewable energy a certain number of miles before it degrades or dissipates into nothing. And so these manufacturing facilities populated the area, including Levi Strauss, American Thread. And one of the buildings I looked at was uh, an American Thread facility, I believe that provided uh, the, the, the stitching to Levi Strauss. And it was a 230,000 square foot building on 70 acres in Marble, North Carolina. During the time of the heyday of the manufacturing up in the Appalachian Mountains, there were probably 50, 100, 200,000 people living in, those, in that region that were working at these manufacturing facilities. In 2000, the United States enacted NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, which encouraged manufacturing facilities in America unfortunately, to close down and move to Mexico. And so all of the surrounding factories, including the one that I eventually purchased, were shuttered and the towns dwindled to nothing. And, and you saw legislation during the Obama administration that labeled them opportunity zones to encourage development of these uh, blighted communities that, that were uh, uh, gutted during NAFTA. And when I got to Marble, North Carolina, which was this hotbed of manufacturing uh, facility. It had a population of 500 people. So there were 500 people living there when I got there. And so I found this amazing facility in a uh, uh, very remote location with very little population. And I said, this is, this is where we're gonna go. And we talked to the power company, obviously. We had two substations on site. We had Duke and TVA, so we had uh, plentiful power, and we're in the middle of these hydroelectric plants that could only send their power so far. So it was, it was an excellent uh, spot for us. And so the next step for me was to meet with the mayor of this small town to tell him what I was going to do to make sure that they wanted us there because I didn't want, we had, I had uh, hosting facilities in upstate Washington before this, and the town turned on those uh, uh, developments, the mining developments in upstate Washington. And the people that we had sent our equipment to failed. Uh, we had to pull our equipment out of there. So I already had known that we needed to make sure it was a friendly jurisdiction that wanted us in there. Why did they turn on it? In Washington state, it was really early. I think a lot of the people that were popping up doing, uh, that were involved in this uh, community early on were not well-funded or had other problems. And so I think what happened in Washington state was that people made promises to the electrical grid providers that they would be utilizing X amount of power. And then 
infrastructure had to be built towards those buildings. And then as they didn't fulfill their promises, I think they realized that this is a dangerous industry for us to be spending taxpayer money on. And so that that was really probably one of several items that happened. But I think a lot of the early projects failed. I think they failed. They also failed not just because enough money or, or from the people running it, the technology was new. And so putting these buildings together to dissipate the heat was difficult. You needed to have uh, sophisticated air, you know, you had to understand thermodynamics. This, this air cooled, uh, you needed to air cool these rooms. And that math to air cool these rooms did not exist because the footprint for the ASIC equipment, the heat that goes in, so it takes electricity and then and then hot air comes out. So it, you have to dissipate that hot air. You can either chill it in the room or you have to get it out of the building. If you don't, it could all burn down, right? And so the thermodynamics on this airflow dissipation uh, did not exist for this equipment. And so a lot of people hired engineers that were good at airflow dynamics from MIT that had PhDs uh, that worked at NASA and Google. And then when you put them inside of a, a Bitcoin mining facility with all different equipment, with different shapes, uh, what I found happened was every time I would talk to these engineers, they would say, no, when I bring them to my building, for instance, in Marble, North Carolina, I said, I need to build this out. Uh, the first three of them that I interviewed said the same thing. They said, we can't do anything in this facility. This needs to look more like a Google box because that's what we learned at MIT, how to dissipate air in a Google box. And so what we learned really quickly was you needed to find engineers that, that could do this on their own. They, they could be more creative. So anyway, so I'm jumping forward. I ended up uh, going to meet with the mayor in Marble, North Carolina to see if he was friendly uh, to our industry and that he would want us to be there and create jobs and, and, and bring uh, more you know, people up there. Uh, when I met with the mayor, uh, it, it was, it was, a, it was a, a comical situation because we met at the steakhouse up there in population 400. So there's, there's not a, there's not, everybody knew I was up there. And I sat down with the mayor and I said, I'm going to open a, a Bitcoin mining facility up here. And, and he looked at me and he said, how do you know the Bitcoin are here in the ground? <laughs> like, how did you realize that they were up in Marble, North Carolina? And so, uh, and I think, by the way, that's not a, that's not a uh, outrageous um, response when nope. you talk about mining. And, and so I think we, we run into that problem all the time because mining is just a really silly word. And, and whoever picked that, uh, should not be a, a marketing person. <laughs> what would you call it? You know, we've back and we've gone back and forth between mining, minting, producing. It's such a hot topic because people are so passionate about it. Yeah, I think the word mining was on a Bitcoin forum in 2010, and like mining and minting, and, and they just that just stuck. Uh, I don't. I you know I I think so far I'm partial to producing, but. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not the marketing guy. I just know that uh, the word mining is is a it has a bad connotation. It sounds dirty. It uh, it doesn't designate that these are just computer servers in a building, which is just a data center. 
And so people are like, oh, you're mining. It's like, no, I, I have a computer server that's plugged into the electrical grid that that is an accountant of this new network. Like, yeah. That's all we are. And so it it does feed into the narrative that, uh, and, and I talk about that for hours, uh, the energy narrative, which we deal with all the time. But of course. But so now the the mayor tells us that he's happy with us coming up here. They're they're looking to attract business and anything he could do to help us get open. Great. And I sat down with the the local uh the local people that were involved in TVA and and the Duke substations that uh fortunately were on site for us. And in twenty seventeen I I rented a cabin and I have kids and and, and my wife and we moved to, to the Appalachian mountains. So I moved up into the mountains there and I hired and staffed this place out. Um, we, we had obviously some staff turnover and I had to learn all of this my own, on my own, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm running this company and I'm, I have to learn thermodynamics. So we have these, this classroom that was in the, in the manufacturing facility. Then we would do, we would bring up engineers and we go through the thermodynamics and, and how it works in, inside these facilities. And we had to really come up with our own way to do it. The initial people that we would hire, uh, if they were working for a third party, so there's third party engineering companies that you can hire, third party construction companies that you can hire. What we realized is if we hired any third parties, it was a disaster. So we had to bring all these people in-house. And so we needed construction people in-house. We needed the electrical people in-house. We needed the engineers in-house. And so I found myself populating this small town marble North with no hotels. <laughs> and there was one hotel like 10 miles away. And so we had to rent, keep renting these cabins. And it was, it, I had people living in, you know, people that were employees in, in you know, in the basement of my play. It was, it was wild. And, uh, and, and we did it. We built out the first enterprise grade level infrastructure facility. Uh, we were before the, that run up, Bitcoin was at like four or three or $400. Uh, it shot up to a thousand. And uh, in, I think late 16, early 17. And then it, it went to three or $4,000. And, and it, was, it was wild watching everybody jump into this industry. And at the end of 17, when it hit, you know, went up to 10,000 then you know, 18,000 or whatever it hit, everybody showed up and said, you know, we're going to build a competitor to you. We're going to build a, an infrastructure facility like what Core is building. And so uh, as these new companies started sprouting up all across the U.S., I, I would get their decks and we would see the names of the engineers that didn't work out for us at these other companies and, and we'd be like, ah, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> we know it's not going to work. Um, and so in 17, we, we, uh, started that, we hit the crypto winter, right. In 18 and 19. Uh, the one thing that we pride ourselves on is that we never stopped building, uh, the chairman of my company, uh, of our company, really, uh, my co-founder, Mike Levitt, who was the chairman in 2017, uh, when I, started the company and moved up there. He was the CEO of a publicly traded company at the time and was very helpful on the capital market side raising uh, for in a different style and fashion that I did and really was ingratiated into this business over, over you know, the last five years. And uh, in 2018 and 19, we, even though it was crypto winter, we just kept building. We, we expanded from North Carolina to Georgia 
uh, where we have facilities currently. We're also we we're also in Kentucky. We have a, a Maristeel plant that that was shuttered there that we have uh, mining activity at. We're in North Dakota. Uh, we're in Texas, and I think we didn't announce it, but I think the people in Oklahoma announced it, so it's public. Uh, we're also in Oklahoma, so I think we've announced six states uh, that we operate in currently, um, and uh, we're, we're we're just you know keep going. So that's that's kind of this genesis story of where we are. Uh, just just to clarify, my role, uh, you know, obviously co-founder of this company with Mike Levitt, and uh, and and very big advocate of the company in the space. Uh, I am no longer involved in operations. Uh, my my job title is uh, chief vision officer. And if you can tell me what that means, I'd appreciate it. Uh, but uh, I go around really, and I try to advocate and educate the people that don't really understand what this innovation is or why it's important or why it's different than proof of stake or what's what's the big deal? Why can't we just do some some other way? And I think people really don't understand that if you get rid of the innovation, which is the proof of work consensus accounting technology, you get rid of the entire innovation, right? So you go back to the old way where the people that control the books and records, if you have all the coins, if you control the network, you can change the network. And so the the innovation is this new server system, which has this distributed consensus mechanism and really the self-audit ability of the network and it self-audits every 10 minutes. So that's that's kind of my accounting, right. uh, you know, uh, probably a, a good chunk of it. But that's that's really what it was. So we're we're all really involved in this industry and you, know, you speak all the time on it and you guys do an amazing job. But at the end of the day, what we're protecting and what we're developing and what we're encouraging is our people to attach themselves to a new method to conduct all civilized activity, which is a new immutable accounting ledger, which changes everything in the entire world. Yeah. Right. A lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> you're right. I speak to a lot of people. I have a lot of conversations, whether it's on the podcast or on Twitter. Almost never do people come from the point of triple uh, uh, accounting, triple bookkeeping a did you call it triple? Tri it's triple entry, entry accounting. accounting. Yeah. yeah, so you have single entry, double entry, and triple entry. The, the only other time I've heard someone really talk about this is uh, I, I had a coffee with John Pfeffer in London. And I was like, he told me his genesis. He said, uh, uh, I met uh, Wences and said, Wences said to me, money is a ledger and the Bitcoin ledger is the best ledger that's ever existed. Uh, a lot of people come to Bitcoin for freedom or they come to Bitcoin uh, because uh, they like they think the tech is cool, the the ability to send money instantly around the world without any third party. Um, but we were with Jeff Booth recently, and he was spending a lot of time talking about misinformation of money and what the impact of misinformation on money is. And I think he's saying the same thing as you, is that this gets rid of the misinformation of money. But not many people come from this angle and talk about this angle. We don't really hear it. No, I think it was... It, I used to hear it a bit more, but it seems to have dropped off that a little bit. It's not... In some ways, it's not the sexiest way of explaining Bitcoin. And also, whilst it's a great innovation and it's a great, uh, it's a great way of improving accounting, removing this misinformation of money, it is a threat to many people as why the banks hate it, why maybe governments are against it. But this innovation is a threat. Well, the innovation is a threat 
to bad people. Yeah. If you want to hide your books and records forever and conduct business in secrecy, then you don't like this network. If you are pro disclosure, right, and pro information and pro uh, anti misinformation, because any of us can look at the ledger of Bitcoin 24 hours a day and see what took place. We can't do that with any other system and know that it's 100% accurate. And so I think you bring up a good point about why people get into it. It's like a, uh, it, it would be like a big heavy car. So like a, a Hummer or something. That's what this is. And you might like the Hummer and you might like to drive around in the Hummer, but you don't know how the engine works. And so what I kind of explained is how this engine works and why the Hummer is a better car than, than whatever the predecessor car was inside the engine. Now, once you're in, once you're in this car, it does do a lot of amazing things. And I think you bring up the most important one, which is it provides freedom. And the way, and the only reason that it provides freedom is because of the consensus distributed mechanism that is the self auditing accounting technology, which is the innovation. And it provides freedom because of this, because you have hundreds of thousands or more nodes located distributed around the globe. So if you picture the globe, right, and that triple entry accounting and you get the, you kind of have a triangle of accounting and then you have the globe. Around the globe are nodes and servers, right? Those are the miners and the nodes. Those keep a complete record of every transaction that's ever taken place on the Bitcoin network, right? So you have every single transaction in the notes and the notes talk to each other. And when a transaction comes through, they audit it to its inception. If it's a bad transaction, it's it's discarded by the system. In order to hack this system, you have to hack all the nodes simultaneously. So what they've created was the first unhackable network in human history, right? So we have the first immutable network in human history for a ledger technology, but we also have the first unhackable decentralized network in human history. And what that means that it's unhackable is nobody can hack it. The hackers can't hack it and the government can't hack it. And so if you have a Bitcoin on your wallet, Nobody can take it from you. Nobody can take it from you. What does that mean? Well, in America, not much, right? In parts of Europe too, we have private property protection, sort of, until they don't like your viewpoint and then they seize your stuff now, which hopefully goes away. But generally in the history of, of America, uh, they protect your private property. We have private property rights that are pretty ingrained in our institutions and, and uh, judicial branch. The The rest of the world, and I love that Alex Gladstein stat, is 87% of the population on the planet Earth, they live in autocratic or authoritarian regimes. Is it 87? 87. And double or triple digit inflation. It's like a combination of those four things. So they go to sleep at night worried. Did you hear a different number? I thought it was like, I, I, I haven't heard the number, but I thought it's like half the world live under authoritarianism. So... Okay, plus double or triple digit inflation. Oh, so one of the two. It's all, yeah, it's okay. a, yeah, any of those. So okay. it's, it's authoritarian or dictators, double or triple digit inflation. And so if you at, and, and I'm assuming uh, Gladstein, and I'm reciting it right, because maybe I have it off, but let's, let's say it's right. 87% of the population lives in autocratic or authoritarian regimes with double or triple digit inflation, or half the population live in authoritarian regi regimes, right? Those people have no private property rights. The government can seize and confiscate everything from those people at any time they want because they have no protection under whatever constitution they're living under. So 
five, four billion to seven billion people on the planet Earth have no private property rights. If they download a digital wallet and they have a Bitcoin or any number of Satoshis on their on their digital wallet, they have, despite what the government wants or whatever the decrees are, they have private property because nobody could take it from them. So the Bitcoin network provides private property rights to all 8 billion humans on the planet Earth as a network. That's insane. Nothing else has ever done that before. So now you have private property rights. And so you see this freedom uh, and why my foundations like the Oslo Foundation and, and Alex Gladstein and other really good people are out there uh, trying to educate people that you can have private property. The other big problem and, and this stat is about half the world. Most half the world, you know, maybe slightly over, uh, they're unbanked. They have no banking. They're outside of traditional financial. Uh, they don't qualify to be banked. Uh, in America, we consider ourselves pretty financially fortunate. I think the number is almost 10, 10 million people are unbanked and something like 50 to 60 million people, they call it underbanked. So they're underserviced on the banking sector. So you have this four billion plus person problem of banking. Well, if you have a Bitcoin and you have a digital asset that is unconfiscatable sitting in your wallet, uh, you can store value. What else does a bank do? Bank does store value, remit of payments, payment processing. So if you have a Bitcoin, you can store value, I can payment process, I can send the Bitcoin somewhere else and I can remit money somewhere else. So this new network that was just created solves an accounting technology problem that's existed for 700 years. It solves the ledger problem. It solves private property problem. And it also solves the banking problem. Now you can bank 8 billion people. So you can provide private property to 8 billion people. You can provide banking to 8 billion people, all because of the distributed network consensus level network that audits every transaction is. And because it's distributed and decentralized, it can't be hacked. And so that's that's kind of the next level once you understand the accounting technology, you understand the proof of work technology, then you can start layering on all the applications that work on top of it. And so you'll see people promoting all of the benefits you get from this new accounting technology, which takes away literally all of the fraud. There is no more human fraud. There is some fraud by tricking people, but there's no direct hacking fraud. Yeah, you, you're not going to have the, well, you don't have to worry that the transaction records are fraudulent. Yes, that's you still always have to, well, listen, in humanity, there will always be yeah. unfortunate human fraud, but you don't, that's not, that's not a risk within the network. Yeah. Within the network, the numbers that you see are the numbers that they are. That's unique. There's no fraud in that. You know that the final outcome ledger is is immutable and unchangeable, and that's what it is. If you take your digital asset and send it to, you know, some country and some guy that, you know, sent you an email, you're going to have a problem. If you open an email up that's asking for your personal information and they hack you, you'll have a problem. There's dangerous people out there, uh, but now they're outside of the direct books and records and ledgers of this of this system. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. And uh, in 2008, we saw how some of the bad people got away with essentially forms of fraud and nobody faced jail. 
Well, not nobody, nobody, but one one person. Yeah. You can Danny will look it up. That one person uh, went to jail for that. But what what what's super interesting about this is you've you've outlined all the different benefits and use cases, but it also makes you realize like how very very early we still are with this because it takes time for uh, people to adopt the system for different parts of what it benefits. So, uh, where's the demand for? triple entry accounting, there isn't a huge amount of actual direct demand right now. But you can think of examples. Uh, exchanges, there's been a push to prove that they have the Bitcoin they say they have. You know, is a is is every Bitcoin exchange solvent? Nick Carter's done some work to try and help exchanges prove that by just exposing an address or addresses which show they have the Bitcoin that is claimed. So that, when we've had this scenario, many scenarios where exchanges have gone into administration or exchanges have gone bust, whether it's Quadriga, whether it's Mt. Gox, assist by using the triple entry accounting, you can you can see. Whether it's El Salvador, where we have previously, I think it was 70% unbanked, maybe more, everyone within that country now with a mobile phone and access to the internet can now be banked. They're even being given a small amount of Bitcoin. So they're being onboarded to the network. When we talk about censorship resistance, you know, we can look at whether it's what happened in Belarus or Nigeria or even now in Ukraine. We have the ability to be able to send money and nobody can stop. So what we're seeing is these pockets of all these use cases that you're talking about. I'm fully on board. Danny's fully on board. You're fully on board. We've just got a lot more people to kind of educate about this. And this is why this conversation is super interesting because I don't think, I think, too much of the conversation has gone towards freedom, which I'm not saying is important, but not enough has gone into this, which is explaining to people why this technology is so important and why it works. I think we've started to leapfrog that. And yeah, this is step one. I mean, you have, yeah. you have to understand this. You have to, and the regulators have to understand this, and Washington has to understand it, that the innovation is the consensus network. If you get rid of this proof-of-work consensus network, the innovation's gone. All of the stuff we just talked about doesn't exist anymore. Maybe that suits them, though. Well, the the established legacy people, but not the not the people that are up and coming in any of the environments. And and right now in America, uh, forty five to fifty million people own Bitcoin. That's a lot of voters. And so you're starting to see, and, and I'm starting to see, in ground swells. Uh, take place, especially after this infrastructure bill, uh, people realize that they need to be talking to their legislators and representatives. And I think the question I've all I get asked a lot is, why not just why not just get rid of proof of work and do proof of stake? Why not? Why do you need this energy use? And so, they're, which they're voting on in Europe right now, the EU. This EU thing is is a travesty, really. The they they use so little energy towards proof of work networks. That it, it's an inconsequential number in the U. I think it's it's something a fraction of a fraction of a percentage, somewhere about. If you look at all of the energy that Europe generates, and then you look at the proof of work networks within Europe, it's something like point zero 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 one eight of the energy uh, utilized in within the borders of that country. So it's if you turn it all off, it means nothing. China used the same excuse, right? China China said we're turning this network off because of the carbon footprint. Uh, the the actuality is China uses somewhere in the lines of 25 terawatt, 25,000 terawatt hours a year of coal energy. And they turned off, let's say they had uh, 
100, half of the Bitcoin network at the time, it would be 100 terawatt hours of energy. So they're burning 25,000 terawatt hours of coal and, and they turned off 100. It, it's an inconsequential number. And so- They didn't just turn it off. They moved it to another part of the world. Well, they forced the people yeah. that were the early adopters that built these facilities out there to relocate. And it, the overall effect, China is a major authoritarian you know, powerhouse in the world, uh, couldn't affect the network, right? If they could have hacked it, they would have. If they could have turned the entire network off, they would have. They're not a fan of people having private property or banking outside of uh, their ability to disrupt it. And so when they passed Ban, they passed Bitcoin bans a number since I've been in the space, 13, 17, uh, and 21 was the mining ban. The the infrastructure just moved, right, to, to regions around the world with greater geographic freedom. And the network, amazingly, because it's so robust, had no downtime, right? There were no protests, no lawsuits. People just moved their infrastructure and the, and the Bitcoin blocks just keep hitting every 10 minutes. So you've never seen somewhere between 50 or 60% of the infrastructure turn off of a network and have no problems, no hiccups at all. And by the way, when they turned the network off, the hash rate fell into the 60s and now we're up to over 220, 230. So we've, you know, the network's grown three or four times stronger than when that turned off. And so I think that's a good, uh, it's a good, casebook example of what you don't want to do if you're a government around the world and you have the newest, most important accounting and financial uh, technology that's ever been invented for humanity is to turn it off within your borders because guess what? It just goes somewhere else, right? And then those other countries, they get all the technologists, they get the smartest people in the world building out the network there, which is going to bring the value there. And what's different about this network of, with any other financial system is that your market isn't the 350 million people in America. It's 8 billion people. You mm -hmm. can do business with everybody. And so to shut that network off is it, and, and we'll see this uh, play out is a massive uh, bad, bad decision, a uh, bad governance decision. And it really was a, uh, a trillion dollar present to the United States because it all came here. Mostly uh, you saw some of it go different parts of the world. And, and I think the people that moved, some of their equipment, unfortunately, uh, they have they have private they have problems because not every nation respects the private property of individuals or corporations within their borders. And so, you, what you don't want to do is send a hundred million dollars worth of equipment and infrastructure to a to a region that doesn't have those same protections. And you and and one day your stuff goes offline and you call up and they're like. What stuff, <laughs> you know, what servers? We don't have any servers here. Uh, and that happens, that does happen. And so we saw a lot of it come to America, fortunately. And now we have to embrace that. Yeah. We have to embrace it. And you brought it up that uh, we really have to make sure that the 50 million people that own Bitcoin are very active and vocal. Uh, we need to make sure our representatives understand what the technology is and the benefits that it brings and also how it helps America keep its... Uh, institution strong and it's it, it's technological advantage that it has over the world in certain industries and a lot of these big companies that are that were birthed in America are, are the industry leaders and so our representatives need to know that this makes us stronger it makes us stronger having this technology grow within our borders and if we expel it or if we over regulate it and show the technology within our borders 
What happens uh, to the technology is nothing. It doesn't care. Uh, it will just move to other regions that have greater freedoms. And and you see El Salvador is a great example that you brought up. I, I believe in the last 40 years in El Salvador, with their traditional banking system, they banked 2 million people, 2 million out of, I think it's 7 or 8 million people in El Salvador. But I'm not sure what the total number is. But I do know the number was 2 million banked. Uh, in the first 90 days, 3 million wallets were downloaded. So they, they, they increased the banked individuals in their country by 50%. 50% more people were banked in 90 days than their traditional legacy systems took 40 years to bank. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's sportsbet.io the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Also today, we have Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about Wow, what is it, like four months now? And I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. 
And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. It's such an interesting time with the regulatory environment because certainly going back a couple of years, two, three years, I was always like, oh, when's the US going to ban this? <laughs> when are they going to ban it? They're going to ban it at some point. This this feels both a very American idea and a very un-American federal idea. Uh, and so I, I kind of always expect it. But what we started to see, this is this growth of uh, people in con- Congress and Senate who've taken an interest. It's people like Ted Cruz who waxes lyrical about Bitcoin in a super intelligent way. I don't know who Orange built him. We have people like Senator Lummis, but we've also got the new people coming through. And we do have the risk of uh, someone like Eric Adams who came out as a Bitcoin and then said some stupid shit about uh, proof of work. But but generally speaking, it is. And I think what it is, is there's people like Coin Central, the uh, Bitcoin Policy Institute, who are actually getting out, or, or Texas Blockchain Council with Lee Bratcher. These people are getting out and they're educating people. And they're actually realizing, like, this is a great technology for America. It's a great defense against Chinese authoritarianism, especially at a time where the dollar is under threat, self, self-imposed by uh, removing the risk-free status of treasury bills recently. But I think this is actually just a huge opportunity for the U.S. that it, I think we're getting way beyond that idea of it being, I certainly don't see it being banned. There might be some onerous regulations which are painful. This is, it, for you, I, Danny, anybody else, this is, we just see this as primarily all opportunity. 100 percent. I mean, and you brought up a lot of really good people and, and a lot of good industries and, and uh, centers and think tanks and uh, lobbyists that have really jumped into the fray. Uh, Lee Bratcher and, and that Texas uh, blockchain um, uh, council. council, yeah, they, they, do a, they do an amazing job. I, I, I work with Lee. Um, the Coin Center and, you know, guys like Jerry Brito and all these guys do an amazing job of educating everybody on everything. It, you know, there's people get into, uh, are people one-sided or the other side? I find that they're not, it's not a black and white. Uh, it's not, it's not binary. There's, there's going to be people that get in front of people that really, uh, teach them that the value exists on both sides. So I, I've watched and I've talked to these guys for a long time and, and ladies that are involved. In 2012 and 13, I think 50% of the questions that I had to deal with were, this is going to be banned, right? And so you kind of see the FUD has changed over the years. The banned questions, I never get asked anymore. The Chinese control the network, and this is a PSYOP, uh, and you're a sucker and China, you know, you're just Chinese stooge. I don't hear that anymore. So we we're the narrative's changing in terms of you know what we have to answer all the time. But the what you just brought up, the banning, uh, that was that, that was so many questions that we would get asked all the time. And then we saw this executive order, even though there there may be some onerous uh, regulations. Regulations are temporary, right? They're administrative. Uh, people get voted in and out of office, regulations change. 
Uh, this network's not going anywhere. And we've all lasted through multiple administrations. So it's Bitcoin's going to outlast every government and every administration decision. And so uh, an outright ban would be terrible because people would have to leave the country to go work on this technology somewhere else. So to work in the regulatory environment, I don't see regulation as all bad. I think, you know, we can work that out. Uh, but really the EO, the executive order just came out, uh, talked about protecting this technology. It's an innovation. Uh, they want it to grow in America and there's enough legislators, regulators, CEOs of companies, think tanks, lobbyists that are in front of people every day. And I do think there's a war, there, there's almost a tsunami of activity in the space that it didn't exist at all before. There was none of this. Um, and so it, it's really been, it's been a, it, it's been amazing to watch it and, and, and watch it flourish. Some of the timing of how everything's worked out is also kind of unbelievable because the network now, well, let's, let's think about back to 2013 when we had something like the Silk Road. If that happened now, that would seem a much more considerable threat to the network. But it happened at a time where Bitcoin just seems so small, you could, you could almost ignore it. Um, and it seems like when Bitcoin grows, the growth rate happens at a rate whereby it creates all these other protections around it. The, you know, it's not just uh, a few nerds and a few people who want to buy some weed who've got a bit of Bitcoin. There are now politicians who own Bitcoin. There are companies that own Bitcoin. Tesla's invested in Bitcoin. Some of the, some of the timings of the way the network has grown and the, what's happened around it almost seems like perfect by design. And I know some of it's just luck. It's it's a very robust network. You know, it's it's a Hummer. It's going to go through everything. It, it's not a Lamborghini. It's not going to, you know, derail off the side of the road. And so whatever is thrown at it, I think it just barrels through it. It will outlast it. I think the, you know, the Silk Road, uh, if that happened today, I think they catch that, they catch these guys immediately. They don't last as long as they last because you're putting... Uh, you're putting digital assets on and off the highway, right? You're off-ramping them every day to different locations around the globe. And the way they caught these, the, the people that were involved didn't seem to be overly sophisticated. Uh, so I, I think the only time you could have had a multi-year operation was early. They just weren't paying attention. They didn't see the, it, it take, you know, it takes years for, for Washington and the regulators to catch up to, to people doing bad things on, in a new way. And so I think, you know, I, I don't want to say uh, they didn't get lucky, but they they lasted longer than they would now. Silk Roads have probably popped up a lot. We don't hear about them anymore because they, they nabbed these guys right away. It is it is the worst network since we're talking about illicit activity. It's the worst for committing illicit activity. It, it, you have an immutable ledger that, that audits itself every 10 minutes and you can track and trace every single digital asset on it forever. That's the absolute worst way to commit a crime. You don't want an asset that's track and traceable for the rest of your existence. And if, you, if it's ever off-ramped, they, they know where to go and they can track these things forever. So the historical way people committed crime is with cash. If you hand somebody fiat cash currency, there's no way to track it. And so I think the UN uh, estimates there's $2 trillion of money laundered every year 
using cash and the traditional banking system. If you look at the fines over the last 10 years of all cryptocurrencies, it's a few billion dollars. So we're not even in the same hemisphere. It's magnitudes worse on the traditional financial system. And yet all the headlines, you know, look towards Bitcoin as providing this avenue for illicit activity. It's by far and away the worst possible way you can commit a crime. And you see people commit crimes with them and then they get arrested. Like yep. the pipeline ransomware deal where these guys asked for Bitcoin, which was a big mistake. And then they took their Bitcoin and sent it to a centralized exchange, <laughs> right? And then the FBI subpoenas in you know seconds because they know where it's going. There's really smart ex uh technicians at companies like chain analysis and, and they're tracking the entire network every minute and they know what's there and then they go seize the they go seize the the the, the stolen bitcoin so you don't you don't want to utilize this network to commit a crime it, it would be a big mistake if i'm an intelligence agency i prefer criminals to use this network i wouldn't i wouldn't tell them it was bad like go commit crime on bitcoin that's fine and then we'll come and get you uh so <laughs> i mean i i you know there's a lot of ooh, this this enables illicit activity it really doesn't you don't want to commit an illegal act on an immutable <laughs> uh ledger that's going to track you forever that's really a bad idea and uh and and so you, you really end up with you know one of the biggest fuds you know the, the biggest being energy use uh, the energy used in this network is the largest uh, disinformation campaign uh, so far. But second right now would be the illicit activity. Let's, the, uh, let's talk about the energy FUD because okay. you're, at, but, excuse the term, you're at the coal phase of this. But you are, you right. know, you're, 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 are you the largest America, uh, miner in North America? So this is where it gets what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not allowed ah, okay. to say. Uh, in February, we've reported our results and we mined somewhere around 35 Bitcoin per day, uh, core scientific. We also have a large hosting facility that, and I don't remember the numbers, but we host a lot of other third-party equipment also. So we're a, we're a large miner. I think in, the sec in February, we reported uh, mining more coins than any other publicly traded company. Uh, they just don't like me to say the word largest. Okay, but that's about just over 3% of... The Bitcoin every day. Yeah. So the every day there's 900, 900 yeah. plus some transactional ones, right? So let's call it a thousand. So yeah, a little over 3%, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, but it's pretty fucking big. So you, look, you, I remember uh, when I was happy when we would get like 0.001. <laughs> I don't know. I've spent, uh, most of this year mining with my five S19s and I'm, not a, I'm getting closer to a Bitcoin. Well, that's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, but you're pretty fucking big. Uh, you've built up data centers. You have to source power. Um, we are at a time where there are people who are concerned about what's happening with the climate and energy usage. Bitcoin as a total uh, contributor to carbon in the atmosphere. It's, uh, it's not huge, but it does have a lens on it at a time when people are considering this. Uh, what what is the the main fud and but but also now I'll come back to the next question. What is the main fud for you? So I, I'll talk about this. Let me give you some perspective because I looked a lot in terms of the history of analog systems becoming digital systems, and the the very first thing that you see from an analog system becoming a digital system are the the legacy players are they get disrupted and they get pretty angry. Historically, right, if you look way back to 
I mean, I think my favorite example is is Ptolemy said that the the solar system revolved around the planet Earth and all religious dogma at the time said we were the center of the universe. Uh, Copernicus realized that the Earth revolved around the sun, right? And what did he do with that information? Nothing, because he knew what was gonna happen to him if he did. On his deathbed, he released a paper that said, you guys are wrong. The, the sun's the center of this universe and we're, we're revolving around we're revolving around the sun. Uh, Galileo found his piece, found his paper, and and said, "Wow, this guy's right." And he wrote nonstop about how the Earth was not the center of the universe, and we revolved around the sun. Well, guess what they did to Galileo? They stuck him in a mental institution and beat him to death, and then they dissected his body parts and dropped them all over the countryside. And after two hundred years. They realized that he was right. And then they tried to go find him and give him a proper burial. And so that's what happens to you when you disrupt the legacy system. What happened to what happened to Galileo? The same thing happened, coincidentally, to this guy. And I always say his name wrong, but it's Ignaz Semmelweis. You know what his crime was? He said all of these uh, these these women that are having babies, they started in certain hospitals. They were. They were dying at a, at a, at a uh, very, uh, dis, it, was a, it was a pace that was just, that was, that was just a very unusually bad. And so this guy looks into it and he says, you know, there's germs on your hand. They're not using any cloth. They're not washing their hands. They're not using gloves. He's, he says, there's germs on your hands. You need to wash your hands before you perform an operation. Okay. And guess what they did to this guy? Same thing they did to Galileo. They stuck him in an institution and they killed him because he said doctors aren't clean. And so you see this happening nonstop. If you're going to disrupt the legacy industry, you better be prepared for the legacy industry people to come after you. And so those two guys, and that's just two of a hundred stories of people that face the consequences of disrupting big time uh, institutions. And could we say Julian Assange is a perfect example of that? I, you know, I can, yeah, without getting political, I think that uh, you're seeing this play out over and over again during humanity. There are legacy system people that do not want to go away. You saw with email, which is the funniest one. Email came out and guess what the United States government, the postmaster general said? The most efficient, the most secure way, literally like quotes, the most secure way to deliver information between two parties is the U.S. mail, not email. And email, guess what? Needs servers and it uses a lot of energy and it's going to destroy the planet and we need to stop emails. And so the U.S. Postmaster General went to Congress, the United States, and said, we need to stop these emails from proliferating because if you send 10 emails, you're burning a pound of coal or whatever the narrative they used. And they actually voted on implementing an email stamp tax in America. Imagine that. And they lost, fortunately. But you still had lots of people on both sides, right, arguing to stop the email. You saw the same thing with, with the Internet, okay? The people that had monopolies, basically, on, on information, they didn't like to see people have access to information. So they tried to stop the Internet. And guess how they tried to stop the Internet? It uses too much energy. You need servers to run the internet. 
And guess what they said? They said every it was it, it was every five megabytes of information burned a pound of coal or whatever it was. It, it equals about a hundred tweets today. What they said burned a pound of coal. And so they they tried to shut off they tried to shut off the internet because of the energy argument. They tried to stop email because of the energy argument. This is not a new argument. Anytime you see an analog system go to a digital system, you see a non-quantifiable amount of energy running an analog system to a very quantifiable amount of energy running a digital system. And it's really easy to say, oh, you need servers. That's terrible. Well, how much energy did you need to send post to send an actual letter from one place to another, right? You need trucks, you need security, you need buildings, you need CEOs and- Airplanes. Airplanes, I mean, look at traditional analog money. You need to make coins, you need to mine the metal, which is terrible for the environment and releases chemicals. You need to transport the metal to a factory. You need to turn the metal into a coin, right? Then you need to trucks and security to transport it to the bank. You need to hand it out. You need tellers, you need bankers, you need CEOs, you need regulatory bodies, you need government. Then you need to use the money. Then the money goes back to the bank. You need security again. And then guess what? They, they, they destroy it every 10 years and mine more. Uh, if it's paper, they have, to, they have to cut down more trees or use whatever chemicals they are to, to make it. So you get these terribly uh, invasive technologies that have been decimating the planet for all these years. And they're like, no, that uses a server. <laughs> that uses a server. We need to shut it off. And so we see that with Bitcoin. These, the first thing to say is this is not a new way to argue against the digital technology. This is always the first argument the legacy people use because you can say, oh, there's a server over there. This is terrible. And, and uh, so that's, that's the first one. Uh, the, the second one is in 2017, coincidentally, when I was building the first uh, core scientific facility up in the Appalachian Mountains, two articles came out, okay? Uh, one from Newsweek and, and one from our buddies at the World Economic Forum. Uh, again, coincidentally, they said the same thing. They said the same thing. And, and it was remarkable what they said. They said that the Bitcoin network is so energy intensive it's so bad for humanity, so bad for the world economic or ecological condition that we need to turn it off right now. And if we don't, if we don't, by 2020, so it's 2017, by 2020, it will consume all, all of the world's energy. Not a lot, literally says the word all. World Economic Forum, Newsweek, 2017. Well, I'm dealing with investors. I'm building the first large scale uh, facility and the mayor, the, all my investors, my board, everybody's calling me up every day saying, what are you doing? Like, what do you, what are we doing? We can't do this. You need to stop. And so thousands of, you know, thousands of hours of dealing with the energy FUD early on. Uh, and, and here we are today, by the way, it's 2022, right? Two years after this prediction from the World Economic Forum, two years after the prediction from Newsweek, and and they and and the prediction was all the world's energy, right? So we know already that's wrong because our lights are on and we're in the middle of a podcast, so we're not using all the energy. But you would assume those two organizations would be pretty close to accurate on the amount of energy that's used by the Bitcoin network. So that's the first thing you have these predictions of human annihilation 
associated with this. And when you tell people they're going to die, they generally listen to you, right? So they're stoking fear in people, stoking fear in people. And the, and the people are getting scared and they're like, they want to know what's going on and what you're doing. Well, the, that answer of how much energy we're using, we know because they're servers in a data center. So you can measure it. Guess what else we know? We also know how much energy is generated globally on an annualized basis. All of the energy producers provide that information, British Petroleum, Exxon, all the people that provide lots of energy, they acknowledge how much energy they, they produce or generate every year. And so you have, we have the number, we have the answer. We know how much energy is generated. Now, before I tell you the number, the next stat, and I know you see this all the time too, is they say the Bitcoin network is so bad it uses more energy than small countries like New Zealand, Norway, Norway yeah. New Zealand, the Netherlands. You know, name a country. The Bitcoin network's destroying the planet because it uses more energy than that. That's the same article. That's the same idea. That's the same ridiculousness that the Newsweek and the World Economic Forum is. They're taking the global Bitcoin network that servers and they're comparing it to small countries, which is a global, it's a global comparison. So you can't understand this comparison that these people are making without understanding what the numbers are globally. So we have to understand the significance of the energy used by this network versus the global energy that's generated. The, how, much is, how much energy is generated globally and how much does this network use? That's it. And we know the answers. The answer is approximately the world every year generates 160,000 terawatt hours of energy. That's the, that's the number that's generated. If you listen to Newsweek, the World Economic Forum, or these other people that say the network uses more energy than these small countries, you would think the Bitcoin network uses a lot of that 160,000 terawatt hours of energy. Well, it doesn't. It does not. Because it, does it not consider what's wasted as well? That's a different... I'll get into wasted All energy. Right. But, but we know the terawatt hours of energy of the network. So of the network... We use, the Bitcoin mining network uses 200 approximately terawatt hours of energy of 160,000. That is trick quickly working out the percentage. I'm not, I was looking at Clark News. That's zero, 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 approximately two. Uh, sometimes you get anywhere from 0. 0.00014, so a quarter, 0.14% to 0.2%, depending on what... Uh, Negligible. What it's inconsequential. If you shut the whole network off, nothing happens. Most large industries, they round off the amount of energy they use globally by one or 2%. That makes the Bitcoin mining network less than a rounding error. It's yeah. a rounding error of any other major industry. It's an inconsequential amount. So a global basis, any of these people that scaremonger on a global energy basis are, are committing, uh, they're, they're being intellectually dishonest. Right, they're, they're do you, com they're commit do you yeah. think it's scaremongering though? Because we had Troy Cross in recently and he's uh, he's been in Bitcoin since like 2011 and he said he basically fell for the same thing, didn't he? He did some some calculations that end up obviously being wrong. But do you think they're scaremongering or do you think they're just not aware of the calculation they actually need to do? Oh, it's, they know they know what they're saying. That's why you say a country because it feels, yeah. if, you, if you say the percentage... These people are good at marketing. You could, you could say the percentage and put it next to how much BP uses or how much... You can compare it to Christmas cool. lights. Yeah. I mean, you could pull up these, you know, analogies that... that pe so what, what you have is you have all these legacy systems, right? And, 
And they're joined together to stop this network. And they've been doing marketing. They're very well funded. They see what's happening. And, and they, they have internal departments coming up with this. This isn't like accidental. Mm-hmm. And so they, this is a marketing plan against this new technology that's very well thought out and they do a very good job and that's why you'll go to the guardian and the guardian will say this technology that's got a few small people rich which is used by terrorists and drug dealers is also using more energy than norway or new zealand so when you start stacking the fud right. on top of the fud on top of the fud they get you, people you get people rather than saying well here oh, are the facts yeah here's the best accounting system in the world which removes money misinformation, which stops corruption, which hopefully prevents banking collapses, which reduces inflation because government can't print money, which also enables people under authoritarian regimes to have property rights, which, you know, so you we can stack our own stack, but we don't have to lie with our stack. No, listen, the truth. Yeah. No, no, by the way, you bring up a perfect point. The truth is actually our friend here. All, all that matters is what's the truth? What, what is the actual truth? Because all of those stats are in our favor. It's the misinformation. We're, the, we're, we're, the, we're getting hit with misinformation in every angle. And we have been since the inception of this network. And I think one of the problems that we faced as, as, as people that are involved in the Bitcoin network is that we found value in a decentralized right, and distributed network. And so what do we do? Well, we all do our own thing to stop this decentralized or this centralized use of misinformation. Because what are we what are we railing against? Well, centralized monetary technologies that have corrupted, centralized accounting technologies that have corrupted. And so we're all trying to stay decentralized. You can't do that in a marketing war. We're in a marketing war and we're losing, right? And so what you had was different people in the industry, including me. I would talk to a few people and never talk to anybody else because I didn't want to be in the middle of all of this uh, personally, you know, in front of all the maniacs coming after me every day. And so like you, which I don't know how you do it, but, <laughs> but, uh, but so I think we saw the, we saw the kickback the most that I've seen uh, when uh, Michael Saylor and I agreed to, to set up this Bitcoin mining council with a few other folks in the beginning and the, and the, you know, I'm, I've been protecting this network for a decade, um, very vested in, in its well-being. Uh, they came after us, right? You're bad guys. You think you're a council of miners and you're going to tell everybody what to think, which, and if they would have listened to us, the only purpose of what that is, and you can see we haven't done anything except for put out educational materials and, and, and tell you how much energy is used by the Bitcoin network. The purpose of that was this. They're united against us. They're really, really good at putting out bad information that's false, right? Or misleading. And how do we how do we combat that? Well, if one company puts out information and another company puts out information and another company, and they're all a little bit different, no one listens. But if everybody puts it out together, they listen. So we needed to coordinate the effort in terms of the messaging coming out. Uh, I think Michael Saylor, I'll give him credit for this quote. He said it the best in one of our first early talks. He said, we could be decentralized, which is what we all are, but we don't need to be disorganized, and which is what we were. And so we've, in an organized manner, collected information on energy statistics so we can counter this FUD that goes on on a, regula- on a, on a legislative level. 
And, and it helps everybody because if America bans this technology, that's not good. It's not good for Americans. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't care, right? You can't disrupt the code. The Bitcoin network will move. But it but makes it easier for Europe to ban it, Australia to ban it. It makes it just, it, 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 listen, it takes it, the window. If we could stop it, why not stop it? And, and by the way, if we can stop it by just providing the truth, well, why not do that? And so that's what we do. We just we just put out the actual numbers. We don't need to we don't need to spin it. We don't need to market it. Here are the numbers. The numbers show that what you're being told is a lie. It's it's intellectually dishonest what you've been told. Anybody who compares this network to a small country is framing this on a global problem. We just talked about what the numbers are. This is not a global problem. Not even close. And by the way, the carbon footprint is the same percentage because we're using energy less the percent of energy, sustainable energy used by this industry over other industries. And so the use of our energy for this network, you, it releases less carbon than this energy would have been used in other industries because we use a majority of additional sustainable uh, energy sources. So you, yeah. you, you end up with this, and here's the waste. I'll give you a good example. You brought up waste. I wanted to address that and I'll let you ask whatever you want. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off again. The, uh, the wasted energy, and this is, this is the example I like to use. Electricity, okay? Electricity and energy, people confuse them. They're different. Energy is used to create electricity, okay? So you, electricity is after it's created and then they push the heat through the lines and then you use it, okay? If it goes too far, it degrades into nothing. You can only send, and I, I say 500 miles, and then people are like, you can't say 500 miles. You could, you could send energy a certain amount of, of miles before it, it, you, you lose too much of it in transmission lines and heat loss. The United States, the United States, we take 10,600 terawatt hours of energy every year to create all of the electricity on our electrical grid. All of the, everything that we're plugged into in the United States is the result of 10,800 terawatt hours of energy creating that electricity, okay? Of that 10,800 terawatt hours of energy, 6,800 terawatt hours of that, over 60% is wasted, poof, gone. What that means is the Bitcoin network, which uses 200 terawatt hours a year, right, is a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the wasted energy in America, <laughs> in America, right? So it's, it's you know, it's one or two percent of, of the wasted energy. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little more than a fraction of a fraction of a percent, but it's, it's one or two percent of the wasted energy in America. So you're seeing, you're seeing these campaigns that pop up to confuse the population that this energy use is destroying the planet. Now, who are, who, there's a lot, I mean, we all agree, I'm assuming, there's a lot of environmental, uh, real environmental horrific crimes committed every day all around the globe. Massively terrible things. They release poisons into the groundwater. They're using pesticides that run off into the, into the streams and the lakes. They're doing terrible things to our ocean. There's terrible, terrible things on an environmental front going on every day all over the world. And disproportionately you know who's harmed by that poor people the poor people they have they live in the in centralized conditional uh areas where there's lots and lots of environmental damage the environmental damage that occurs 
on a yearly basis, right? It's horrific. It's not caused by Bitcoin. It's not caused by the small, inconsequential amount of energy that's used by Bitcoin. Yet, what's on the front cover of every article right now in every mainstream media outlet? Bitcoin energy use. Nobody's talking about all of this horrific stuff that's going on across the world. And so, it, we're, we're really living in this dystopian environment where there's massive environmental crime being committed and they're focused on 0.00018 of the world's energy, which people like me and we're building in sustainable environments, the majority of the large companies. And so it's, it's a, it's a nonsensical article. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a nonsensical argument. The articles were nonsensical too. And it, and it's really unfortunate to watch it play out over and over again. And I've had, I've had hour long talks with lots of people and they're like, well, the New York times said this uses more energy than this country. And I'm like, Back in oh. New York time. <laughs> like nonstop. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of, that's kind of the, that's the, that's part of the energy talk. And obviously I could talk a lot about it. Well, I just wanted to put something in there because your answer there and the work the, um, Bitcoin mining councils have done is essentially kind of defensive work. It's this is what you've been told. Here's the truth. But I'm also really interested in the offensive work. We had Margot Pires on the show recently from the uh, Bitcoin Policy Institute, and we're helping her get funded to run a project. Now she is an environmentalist, um, and she uh, she wants to do a project. She wants to write a paper studying what's happening here with ERCOT. How. Uh, I think, was it two years ago? I mean, you've spent probably more time here than me, but it's two years ago that the the grid collapsed because of the something to do with the weather and the infrastructure. But also there's like a need for a balanced load. Mm-hmm. Not only on a policy level, education level, can you go and defend the FUD with regards to how much energy uses, is used. You can actually come back and say, not only is the energy use negligible, but if we place mining infrastructure here, we actually stabilize the grid. So you have both offensive and defensive arguments. Very good point. 100% right. Uh, The Bitcoin Mining Council is more of a defensive educational uh, platform. And then on the offensive, uh, people, what what was the name? Margot Paez. Margot Paez. I'd love to see what she's putting together because that sounds super interesting. Yeah. But what you bring up is exactly right. And and here's the difference between the energy used by Bitcoin miners versus the energy used by, let's say, AWS, a, a big data center company. If, if there were, emer- like you said, an emergency weather event, okay, and, and part of the grid energy generation facilities collapse or get turned off, or pe- too many people turn on their power during you know, non-peak hours where they didn't have enough electricity to send around. If there's an emergency event or a controlled load event where there's a, a load problem, companies like core scientific have contractually agreed to shut off in seconds all of the miners now why can we do that and why can't other industries do that right well if we turn off our bitcoin mining servers nothing happens they just stop doing calculations nothing happens at all if aws turns off their data centers ethereum stops running yeah. Ethereum stops running. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Daddy's, no one's going to die. Daddy's if, getting cocky now. He's got a mic. Yeah. <laughs> Ethernet. <laughs> yeah. No. The, you know, you'll see. You'll see consequences that that affect uh, stake networks that are on that are on uh, servers over there. But you'll also see much more dire consequences in that they're running the traffic lights in Austin. 
right? And yeah. every other city in the plan, every other city in America, you're, they're running the air, air traffic control towers, right? That their, their servers are offsite at, at AWS. So what happens if you turn off AWS? People are going to die, right? It, it's going to be terrible. The ramifications are going to be massive. And so you cannot turn off traditional legacy industry uh, systems. You just can't. And they have fail safes for that. They have re power redundancies built in. They have generators. They have all types of stuff that make sure that they never go offline. Bitcoin miners, we don't care if we go offline. So what we're called is flexible load. If there's an emergency, you can shut us off first. We'll give the power back that we were going to take. We just won't take it anymore. And so we're the first line of defense in an emergency situation. And what does that mean for an electrical grid on a regional or local level? That means if you have a Bitcoin mining facility on your grid, your grid is stronger than any other grid that does not because the first power to turn off is ours. And Core Scientific, we issue a press release the last few months on the total number of times we turn off, we, when, we, when we shut off power, we, we tell how many times we down power a month and how many, how many megawatts of power we send back to the grid. And it happens often. I think over 10 times last month, a number of times in January. And so we're curtail power. We'll turn it off right away and send it back to the grid. So is, is that something that's like you, you sign the contract with the energy provider? Yeah, so there's different types. We are right now contractually obligated. Uh, most big energy utility companies, they'll require it. And so for the large miners, and I'm assuming all other large miners have contractual obligations to curtail power during emergency events or controlled load events. There's also economic events, like sometimes power prices shoot up. We have the rights to shut off then. So there's economic, there's three, there's really three reasons to curtail power. Economic, there's some kind of economic event, which is not an emergency. Emergency, the storm, something terrible happened in the community or a controlled load event where the loads get disrupted. So you, those are the three different types. And is there a, a, a power down process? Like how long does it take you to- Seconds. It's seconds. You can yes. literally just turn them off, no off. damage to equipment. Nothing. Turn them back on 15 minutes later, six hours later. Doesn't Amazing. Matter. Doesn't matter. And so that ability to down power an industry like that doesn't exist except for this. And so we provide that flexible load. Now, what's why is flexible load so important? Well, what are renewables? Renewables are intermittent. They're not always on, right? The wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. The waves get lower. So you have this intermittent renewable energy source, which people want and the world wants to move more towards renewable energies. Well, in order to get more renewable energies on your grid, which are intermittent, so they come and go, you need flexible load so you can downpower them as the intermittency hits in certain times on renewable energy. So this industry is not only making the grid stronger, we're really subsidizing the growth of renewable energy globally, right? We're the only private industry today that's subsidizing the growth of renewable energies on a global basis. Do you know this Troy Cross and do you know his thesis? No. So Troy Cross is a uh, guy who came on the podcast. He's been on twice now, once with Nick Carter. Um, he has a whole thesis about how he's identified exactly what you said, but actually this can be used to actually incentivize the uh, further investment in renewables. And I know not everyone agrees with this, but what, and what he's saying is there's billions, if not, I don't know what the number is, but say billions of dollars of ESG budgets out there 
that could be directed towards investment in renewables to support mining, to support these He's grids. 100% right. Yeah. If you had him on with Nick Carter, he's a smart guy because Nick's well, a genius on all Well, Nick, Nick knows way more of this than, than I do. So Nick pointed into us. We did the show. Massive amount of interest in it. From that, we've got the two together. And from that, that's where we had Margot. So Margot's going to do the pro- – we basically said we'll help get her funded. She wants Good. to go and run the project. I'd love to talk to her. Well, yeah, I'll we, help fund her. Well, we'll, we'll set that well, up. If I can, if, the, if I get allowed to do the public she needs yeah, like thirty thousand dollars we need six yeah, people to give her five in, put me in touch with so Margo. She, she's going to speak to amanda fabiani as well mm-hmm. but she's going to go and produce a paper that explains exactly what's happened here in with ERCOT, and that's going to be something that will not only be evidence for you know the market for the fud but actually you can then take to other parts of the grid and say by the way you should be considering this Layered in what, what Troy has said is that you can go out to, I mean, his example was the Winklevoss. What they did is they offset, they made it public, they offset their energy usage. But what he said is you could offset by mining Bitcoin with renewables because that drives investment in renewables. So you've now got ESG budgets, which was been used, uh, ESG has been used to attack Bitcoin. Which you can turn it 180 and say, actually, you can point your ESG budgets at infrastructure that builds out green mining and you get a Bitcoin return. Yeah. No, listen, this will all, it, it, it has to come full circle because yeah. the truth of all of this is this is the most ESG friendly technology that's ever existed. It's not just on an energy point, but also on a governments and social point. It doesn't care anything about your demographics, right? Doesn't have anything to do with that. And it provides all humans on the planet with banking, right? And private property. So, not just on an energy basis does this tick ESG, you know, notches. It ticks them on every part of the ESG, not just the E, it's the S and the G. And so at some point in the future, as people learn what this technology does, this will be a massive investment for these big ESG funds. And and I, I, I like that you guys are going down that path. I'm going to tell you something's going to blow your mind All right. for ERCOT. Uh, and Margot could, could, could look this up. So we had a, a big call with, with the ERCOT people about this problem. And this, this problem is going to blow your mind. Because there's so many new renewable energy projects going up in Texas, guess what they're worried about? Too much power? The price of power going to zero. <laughs> That's what they're worried about. And guess what happens if the price of power goes to zero? The legacy systems that run the baseline energy that you need so people don't die, they'll go out of business. So we're providing too much renewable energy, which is going to endanger the legacy energy systems. Those are the new problems. And so all of those are complicated too. Like how do you how do you not lose your baseload energy because you have so much renewable energy and you don't have the battery technology to, to contain it during X amount of cycles. So you so is that, is, that a, is that a bad risk because you need that reliable baseload? You need a baseload of energy yeah. all the time. Yeah. You, I mean, we're not at at some point, maybe in 100 years, you know, they'll know how to have, you know, energy stored. Storing energy is very complicated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but right now you need baseload energy. Yeah, you can't rely. If you're solely relying on intermittent energy, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. So you need a baseload energy. And so there, because we're going to have so much renewable energy available most of the day, you still need to make sure the the baseload energy is available for the times when you don't need it. And that's not for Bitcoin mining. That's for civilization everywhere in the world. Okay. 
talk to me um, about chips because uh, we're perfectly aware that during times of growth with Bitcoin, getting hold of ASICs is, can be challenging depending on who you are. Obviously, you'll have your relationships. But uh, if there was a mass, massive increase in the Bitcoin price, that will drive a massive increase in uh, the demand for more mining facilities. But the ASICs can only be produced at a certain time. I know that Intel are looking at producing chips. Information's coming out about that. Also, uh, uh, Jack Dorsey made an announcement that uh, they're going to be looking into chips as well. Uh, there is a risk with the primary foundry, I can't forget, is it TSMC? Is that the mm. name of it? Uh, uh, in Taiwan, and uh, that's a geopolitical risk. You're probably much closer to all of this than I am, probably looking years ahead in the consideration of the ASICs that you want to purchase. Where are we at with all this? Because uh, one of the we had Matthew Pines here, and he was talking about the second order effects of Bitcoin mining on the energy industry is, is incredible. He said it's going to have exactly the same impact on the chip uh, uh, on the market for uh, chip production in that there's a requirement for foundries to be built here to protect the mining industry. 100%. Chips, is a, chips are a big problem globally to make sure you have a steady amount of, of ready available chips, otherwise none of your electronics work. I think one of the most interesting things is, do you know what chips are made of? No idea. Well, part of silicon. Silicon. They're made of silicon, right? Yeah. And there's always a shortage of chips all over the world, right? But they're made of silicon. You know what silicon is? Sand. 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 It's the most abundant mineral on the planet Earth. There's sand everywhere. How come we're always running out of chips? Hmm. Right. The process of taking the sand, the silicon, and perfecting it into a chip is very expensive and very, uh, you need what I'm told, because I, I, this made no sense to me when I went down the rabbit hole on the silicon, like you said. Like, I looked at this for a while, and I was trying to figure out why we're running, always running out of chips when they're made of silicon, which is everywhere. <laughs> and so you, I started looking up chip companies. I couldn't find anything. There's the manufacturing silicon companies that make the chips. It's almost like they're invisible. And, and this is, I didn't understand how they made the chips. And, and I was trying to understand this because originally when we'd buy equipment, and I bought a lot of equipment from the different various uh, uh, manufacturers in like 15 and 16, I was all, I went to China and I visited all of the different manufacturers of equipment trying to figure out who, you know, I kept getting fucked. I'd buy machines and they wouldn't show up before I started a bigger company. Uh, I went to, uh, there, there were several reputable brands back then. One of them was InnoSilicon and InnoSilicon's offices, you know where they were? In Wuhan, they were in Wuhan, China. So I was in Wuhan, China, meeting with the inner silicon people. And they, in 2015, and this this blew my mind, they had a blockchain museum, big one, beautiful. This huge blockchain museum with all of the stuff on the triple entry accounting and all the, everything that had happened up until then. So they really understood the importance of this technology before it traveled around. It was, it was, it was created here. But the, the Chinese really adopted it quickly. Um, I think if you live in an authoritarian regime, that's what you want to do. But anyway, I was, we would buy chips, we would buy machines, and we would order, back then it was like 10 terahash machines or 14 terahash machines, whatever the number was. And the machines would come and they'd be 12 or they'd be 16 or they'd be nine. They were never the same. And so I was curious why the chips 
why why is it the chips is it the software is it the front like why are they why are they all different and uh this this uh one of the one of the guys that worked at one of the he worked at Canon. Uh, he explained how you make chips to me uh, that I never forget. And I think it's interesting. Um, you get the silicon. You don't just make a chip. He says it's like a pizza. And so all the chips are different when they come out of the other side. You put all the toppings on this chip and they're really, really small. And then they bake and then they come out and then you have to test each chip individually to see how fast it goes. And then they have grade A, grade B, grade C chips, and the better ones go faster than the other ones. And so that's why when some of the manufacturers release a model, they say some of them are 110 terahashes yeah, and some yeah. of them are 100 and some of them are 90. That's because the chips are better from one of the runs. And that's also why you can have these companies that start up to create manufacturing uh, chips and to, to build their own equipment. They'll do a tape out, which is the run. And so they're, they're, it's their, if it's their early tape outs, they could do a 50 million or $20 million. I don't know how many, you know, tens of millions of dollars it costs now to do a tape out, but they could fail. So all the chips can come out and not work. And so that's, that's why these companies failed because their tape outs didn't work and the chips didn't work. And so that, the chip stuff's fascinating to me. I mean, probably not to anybody else, but the, the silicon that goes into it's widely available. The tape outs are all distinct. The, the processes, and certainly a company like Intel, they don't need any help on this stuff. Like they know how to do this stuff really, really well. Um, but that, so, so you have that. The interesting part on the chips, really on an efficiency scale for, for Bitcoin mining, is that the first chips that came out for ASICs, right? So ASICs, uh, I guess 2013, so eight years ago, uh, you look at the efficiency of the equipment in joules per terahash, which is how much energy will create a terahash, right? Like or one joule of energy creates how many terahashes? Um, and so the chips that were made from the first run, so the first ASICs that came out, I think they were around one terahash to the, to the chips that are coming out now and how fast they are, the, the new chips are 40,000% more efficient than the first run of chips eight years ago. So we have a, and this goes to one of the points you said, we have a 400 time increase in efficiency in the chips that are now running much faster with less energy. And so that second order where it goes to the rest of the world in terms of other usability of these of this great efficiencies of these ASICs, that'll play out in, in other industries as well. So they're creating new technology that is then going to power AI. I mean, AI is just running computers very much like, much, much like a Bitcoin server, very, very fast, right? The, the more computations you can make, the faster theoretically the machines learn. And so you have a, you have this, uh, this very close relationship between Bitcoin mining machines and the facilities that they're in, the blockchain infrastructure facilities, and how fast these machines have to go to what's going to happen with AI, because they have to have similar types of equipment, right? They have to go really fast and, and, and uh, calculate as, as many different, you know, al you know, algorithmically how many different consequences there are for each action. But- they're all interrelated and you'll see, 
I am, if I had to guess, you'll see these things correlate into, you know, second world effects or whatever the technological term is for that. <laughs> um, your, your history in this is, is fascinating because you've, you've seen the industry mature um, and quite significantly. You, you, you've mentioned today, uh, starting out essentially with there was GPU mining back in 2011 and then they had the first ASIC. I missed the CPU. But Sorry, yeah. the CPU. Well, CPU, GPU, and yeah. that, but I missed that one. But then the first ASICs and then wanted to build out professional facilities and then moving towards uh, the, the uh, integration with the grids. Uh, and now we have Intel wanting to produce ASICs and a, a large number of publicly traded Bitcoin miners uh, uh, now in existence. Like that transition from a nerdy tool using CPUs and GPUs to these Intel and like, how do you take that all in? Because it's it's some growth and some uh, uh, evolution of the industry. Yeah, listen, it's the great question. It's surreal. I mean, I, I was telling people that this is the best accounting technology and they're like, you're an idiot for <laughs> a decade, right? And so now we have executive order. We have Intel in the space. We have publicly traded companies. We have huge funds jumping in. And so it's, it really is, it's surreal to watch this growth. Um, and we are super, super early. Uh, I think the best example is the internet itself. I think the internet was invented in, the, I mean, utilized by, by civil, by non, you know, by civilians in the eighties, early eighties. There's an article that came out and I, I want to say the guardian, but I don't remember who it was in 99, 15 years after the, the internet was utilized by civilians. And the article said this, the internet is a passing fad. It's gonna go away. <laughs> wasn't by Paul Krugman, was it? <laughs> I don't know, but if you look it up, you'll see who wrote the article calling the internet a passing fad. And it wasn't just one, it was multiple. And so we're talking 15 years into the internet and it was a passing fad. We're 13 years into the biggest, most revolutionary technological innovation, not just for accounting, but for everything that touches accounting, like monetary technology, it's going to take a long time. It's just not going to happen overnight. Danny, do you remember the time when there was no internet? Not really, no. Yeah, so I, I first used the internet in 1992. I just remember I was 14 years old and we got it at school and we were all given, there was one computer, we were all given 10 minutes to just go and like go on the internet, go onto Yahoo that's amazing. I'm going to date myself. When I was an accountant, I the only job I ever last, it was my first job and then I quit. Uh, I had, was tasked, there was a fire, I was in LA. There was a fire at the LA Public Library and two quarter, uh, three quarters, I don't know, it was like half or three quarters of the books in the library burned. As a young associate of the accounting firm, I got to... Uh, we, we were tasked with recording which books did not burn on a ledger without a computer. And so <laughs> we didn't have computers. So we were doing it by hand, all the serial numbers of the books. And, and uh, that was my only ever audit assignment as accountant. But yeah, they, I mean, it's hard to remember time when, well, remember AOL? Of course I remember the discs to, on it. Every yeah, front. you had to download it and then you had to plug it into the wall and it would go, and it would go really slow and it was shitty. And you're like, no one's ever going to use this. I can't do anything. And the image would loan live. Yeah, line that's where line. we are now. This is like the AOL of, uh, we're, we're still so, we're the, that early juncture before yeah. it works great and things have been built on it. Well, so I remember when my dad, my dad was an aircraft engineer for 35 years. And whenever he had to prepare for an exam, 
he would have his manuals and he'd have a book and he'd be writing things out. He, he always wrote everything, uh, even to the point where he would manage the, the, the accounts of the house, his finances. He had a book and he essentially would write out his ledger of what he spent and what he's got left. He never went away from that. And then I started to get, we got our first computer and I started to use it. And I would never have done what he did. I always used a computer. And and then my my son, a bit like Danny, has never known no internet. But my daughter's one step further. She's never really known no screens because essentially from what, the time she's could use one, there's been an iPad or an iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's things you don't realize, like people don't realize because of mobile phones. Do you remember before mobile phones when you went to meet somebody? Do you remember what you had to do? You always had to be on time because if you weren't on time, they wouldn't know where the fuck you were. And you couldn't get hold of them. <laughs> right. Whereas now you can be late as shit because you can phone and say, oh, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. I'm going to be 20 minutes late. Oh, let's meet here. You agree to place. I mean, my first date, I went to the cinema with this girl. Went to see the, I'm not going to tell you actually. But uh, <laughs> we agreed a time and we met there because you couldn't do anything about that. But we're now, this people are going to be born now in 10 years time and they're not going to have known a time where you couldn't send money instantly around the world to anyone permissionlessly. Mm-hmm. Like these are the steps we're taking. This is where we are now. It's always, I think it's always funny to look back at that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's, that's, those are really accurate depictions of what's about to happen and why the people in Washington need to start thinking like that, that this is not going away ever. It's like saying the internet's going to go away. It's not. Internet helps you move information around. This helps you move everything else around. All the ledgers, anything in the world that needs a ledger like money, this this will move on that. And so, as you said, that it's very present that that as the children grow into this technology and learn it, as they grow up, that's what their baseline is, right? And so they're going to expect some degree of access and cooperation with the people that are running the countries. And I think the people that see that early and 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 capitalize on that, especially in America, you're seeing a lot of of uh, candidates that are that are now out talking uh, to 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 different parts of these communities is is I mean the whole this whole step operation as you just said from the beginning you know it's in you know GPUs and then and then moving through all of the different FUD articles to you know it's going to be banned and silly to be involved in it to you know the Chinese control it to you know that you know to what it is now and it will just keep changing but the one thing that's certain is it's never going away because this is the best accounting technology which is instrumental to run the world that has ever been invented and so the rest of it is just noise to me it's it's going to go up it's going to go down the daily price fluctuations are meaningless uh we just keep we just keep building and how lucky we all are to be right at the front line of this yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's not, it, you've seized an opportunity with the knowledge that you have to, to be here. I mean, luck is part of, uh, is made by the people, you know, to some degree made by the person that, that you've, that you are and have become, and you've put yourself in the right circumstances. But yeah, no, for this time period. Yeah. I mean, we're f- extremely fortunate to be here during this, you know, revolution of, of, of technology, right? It's, just like the people that were here when the internet and they, they created the first companies on the internet. This is, you'll see those same, those same things happen here. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm glad you did this. It I'm was glad ev- I came. Everything I, I, I'd been promising Danny for a while. I said, just wait. 
Darren fucking great. He's uh, got to get him on. Uh, we will definitely do this again sometime in the future. There'll be different things to talk about. But look, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been good to get to know you and know you're uh, someone I can ask a favor from. And there just to go. talk to you, man. Uh, is there anything? Any, do you want to direct anyone listening to anything? No, I think we've touched on a lot of subjects. I think right now, today, the most important thing going on in our space is to make sure your representatives are, are pro Bitcoin and pro this space and pro individual freedom, right? The, I think everything kind of fades away if, if you lose your individual freedom. And so uh, anything that you can do to make sure that the people that are in your uh, regional or, or local elections uh, really understand what's at stake here. And uh, it, it's a shame to see what's happening in the EU, uh, not for the technology, because the technology doesn't doesn't care, but for the people with within those jurisdictions. And so that that would be it. Just try to be active. Yeah, man. All right, brilliant. Thanks, Thanks man. for having me. Appreciate it. Good to see you guys. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.